Do you, Chris, take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife? Do you promise to barrage her with obscure facts concerning comics, movies, TV shows, and toys? I do. And Cindy, do you take this man-child to be your lawfully wedded husband? Do you promise to humor him by engaging him in his obsessive ramblings, for better or worse, in pre-crisis or in post? Sure, why not? Then by the power invested in me by the High Father of the Fourth World, I now pronounce you Supermates. You may podcast with the bride. Hello and welcome to episode 27 of Supermates, the Husband and Wife Geekcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Cindy. And today we are going to start our chronological examination of James Robinson's Starman series. Uh, This is a series that Cindy and I both really love. Uh, we read it as it came out. We've got all the issues, although now I found out in doing my research in this, I think I knew about it but kind of forgot there was a Blackest Night issue. Right, number of, 81. Number 81 of Which Starman. Which we haven't read yet, but we might. We'll get to it before it. the end of it. I mean, this is this is going to be a, a periodic venture sideways in Supermates. This is something we're going to come back to on occasion. Yeah, like every three or four episodes, you know. Yeah, I mean, you know, if we might get into, like if we get to a storyline that's long and requires us to do like two episodes we won't we'll probably we'll probably try to do a storyline at a time so there you go, yeah. so if it's like a seven or eight part storyline we'll do like two episodes to cover mm-hmm. it in a row so we won't leave you hanging and then we'll do you know episode here and there that covers like the issues in, in between and or something like that that's that's the idea at the at the front but today we're going to talk about the initial storyline, which was called Sins of the Father, that uh, begins in issue number zero, uh, which we'll get to why that starts with issue number zero in a minute. But before we get into the actual James Robinson written Starman series, I thought it'd be a good idea for people who aren't familiar with Starman to go over the, the history of the character. Very good. Okay. So, Starman, a.k.a. Ted Knight, debuted in Adventure Comics number 61 in April of 1941. Um, Some places I've researched said Gardner Fox was the writer. Uh, There's some dispute about that. Um, But he was most definitely drawn by Jack Burnley. And uh, Jack Burnley was actually one of the better draftsmen of the Golden Age. He was actually a a very good artist. I mean, he was a... More had more of a classical style, you know. A lot of the comic book artists back then had a kind of raw vitality, but this guy could actually draw. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's no two ways about it. He could draw. He he drew the uh, Batman um, comic strip. He contributed to that. Contributed a lot of covers to Superman and Batman comic books and World's Finest. And he's just uh, he's kind of one of the unsung heroes of the Golden Age. Ted Knight appears in Adventure Comics number sixty one. He's got his gravity rod. Uh, but he's never given an origin in the Golden Age. And the gravity rod, uh, you know, it allows him to fly, de- deflect bullets and, and uh, fire blasts and things like that. And it kind of does whatever the writer needs him to do, do at the time. <laughs> at the right. time, yeah. Things were kind of loosey-goosey back then in the Golden Age. So, And it evolves over time, as we'll see. Starman was actually the cover feature through issue number 72 because DC apparently had... High hopes for him. Then Simon and Kirby came to DC, and Manhunter, and then their version of the Wesley Dodd Sandman took over the cover feature. Uh, Starman was still seen in the corner vignette 
on the covers through issue number 102, which was dated February, March 1946, which was his last issue. In fact, the entire lineup of Adventure Comics got kicked out of the book because the more fun comics crew of Superboy, Green Arrow, Aquaman, Johnny Quick, they all came over from that title because more fun switched to humor. Mm, gotcha. so it was kind of a strange, strange deal there. Uh, he was actually a card-carrying member of the Justice Society of America, and uh, he joined up in All-Star Comics number 8, December uh, 41, January 42. He replaced Iron Man, who took a leave of absence, and actually, what some people don't realize about the JSA, most fans do, but basically, there was a system where it was two guys from Adventure Comics, two guys from More Fun Comics, and, and that's the way it worked. I mean, they took like two characters from each of the DC or All-American Comics anthology titles. So Iron Man was out and Starman came in because they were both in Adventure Comics. So he took Iron Man's place. Of course, when he is, his feature uh, ran out in Adventure Comics in 1946... That was the end of him. You didn't see him again for, for years. A different Starman appeared once in Detective Comics number 247, September of 1957. This was a temporary identity created by Batman after Professor Milo made him afraid of bats. Hmm. So there you go. Oh, and real quick before we move on from Ted Knight, there was actually a short-lived podcast called the Starman Observatory that covered the Golden Age Adventures of Starman, and it was a really good show. Uh, and unfortunately, there haven't been any new episodes in quite some time. So hopefully, you those... said there was what three episodes? I think so. Found? I think so. And and uh, we do not mean to step on anybody's toes, but they were covering the Golden Age Starman anyway, which were not, other than his appearances in this book, but not the actual Golden Age issues. But anyway, so after an 18-year absence, Ted Knight returned in Justice League of America number 29 and 30, August September of 1964 in the second annual JLA-JSA crossover. Just like all the JSA, his adventures were now said to have taken place on Earth 2. Not a hard concept to understand. <laughs> right, right, which we've gotten into before. He teamed with Black Canary in two tryout issues of The Brave and the Bold, number 61 and 62, from August, September, and October, November of 1965. In fact, in issue number 61, they fought his old foe, The Mist, who plays a very prominent role in this series. Yes, very very prominent, yes. And actually, those those uh, Starman Black Canary stories are revisited in this series as well. Mm, anyway. <laughs> no spoilers. Sorry. I want to keep... I, one thing I do want to do in this is, I mean, as we talk about this specific storyline, we're kind of hoping you're reading along with us, and we'll... I mean, we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about what happens in the books, but we'll try not to spoil ahead. We might say... Pay attention to this, but we're not going to tell you what happens. That's that's kind of my idea. Or we're going to try not to tell you what happens. I'm really bad about that, so you <laughs> might have to watch me, son. Okay. Or say, shut up, Cindy! Well, I can always just... I do the editing, so I can always just delete what you said. Nice. <laughs> Real nice. Now, don't you wish you could really do that in life? <laughs> no. Not you. Other people, yes, but not you. Oh, good save. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh when Ted reappeared, I, I didn't put this in my note, when he reappeared in the, uh, the 60s, his gravity rod had become a cosmic rod, a more powerful version he had been working on it in his retirement or semi-retirement. He continued to appear in the sporadic JLA-JSA crossovers in the Justice League of America title through the mid-1980s. 
In the 70s, he gave his cosmic rod and later a cosmic converter belt he created to the Star Spangled Kid. Uh, that was in the revived All-Star Comics series. He only made a few appearances in that run. Mm-hmm. During that time, a new alien star man, do we pronounce that Mikal or Mikal or Mike, Michael? Michael? Michael. I don't know how to pronounce it. I always said Mikhail. I don't know why, but... I always pronounced it in my head, Michael. Well, they do call him... We'll just say Michael. It's spelled weird, but it's M-I-K-A-A-L-T-O-M-A-S. Michael Thomas. Debuted in first issue special number 12, March 1976. Created by Jerry Conway and Mike Bosberg. He didn't reappear again until Starman Volume 2, issue number 3, which we'll get to. Mm-hmm. Another alien Starman, Prince Gavin, debuted in Adventure Comics number 467... January of 1980, created by Paul Levitz and Steve Ditko. His feature ran until issue number 478. Gavin's story wrapped up in DC Comics Presents number 36, August of 1981, in a story by Levitz and Jim Starlin. He died in the Crisis on Infinite Earths. He was one of the many casualties there. Producers of the live-action Starman film with Jeff Bridges and the TV series adaptation with Robert Hayes had to license the name Starman from D.C., even though otherwise they're no way connected. Oh, no, not at all. No. And most people tend to have forgotten about both of those. Well, yeah, and this is just a little aside. In the miniseries, um, Chris, Christopher Barnes was Starman's kid in that. Right. C.B. Barnes, who went on to play Greg Brady in the Brady Bunch parody movies. Wasn't was he the voice of Peter Parker Spider Man on the '90s Spider Man series? He was. He okay, was. so that's and the reason I know that is, I I had a little bit of a crush on him at the yeah. time, you know, because that was back what in the '80s '90s, you know. Yeah. So yeah, always well, and and he was the voice of Spider Man, and Robert Hayes was the voice of Iron Man. Exactly. Tony Stark. Yeah. In the '90s cartoon, so there you go, and also an airplane, which you know, classic. But anyway, uh. and also Hyde's dad in that '70s show, his first father. Robert Hayes was. You're right. You're right. Yeah. Who then? He his dad was uh, uh, Ted Reed, Tim Reed from uh, from WKRP. Be, yeah. 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 Venus sorry. Venus Flytrap. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. I digress. <laughs> we're, anyway, t- we're, t- we're like seven children. Wow. Wow. Uh, <laughs> the career of Robert Hayes. Right. Right. The Robert Hayes podcast. <laughs> uh, Ted Knight was an occasional character in Roy Thomas's All Star Squadron in the 1980s. He was given his first origin in issue number 41, January 1985 of that title. While other heirs of the JSA formed Infinity Incorporated, where Ted was seen from time to time, the original Who's Who listed Ted as a widower with no children. Hmm. That will soon change. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, after Earth 2 was merged with several other Earths and Crisis on Infinite Earths, see the uh, Tales of the Justice Society of America Presents Crisis on Infinite Earths podcast by Scott Gardner and Michael Bailey, which is freaking awesome. Ted Knight went off with the JSA to fight Ragnarok in an infinite loop in the last days of the Justice Society special number one from 1986. Basically, Roy Thomas was told to get rid of the JSA. You know, they were going to do it anyway, so he thought, well, if somebody's going to do it, I'm going to do it. And he wrote them out of continuity for, you know, in the grand scheme of things, all about two minutes. <laughs> right. It was more like six years, but, you know, now in hindsight, it's like they really weren't gone that long. <laughs> At the time, it seemed like it. Will Payton became the new the new DCU Starman in Starman Number 1, which was the first ongoing title with that name, uh, in October of 1988. He was created by Roger Stern and Tom Lyle. The series ran for 45 issues through April 1992. 
I, in that last issue, I think it's in the last issue he's killed by Eclipso, supposedly killed by Eclipso. I couldn't, I don't have that issue, and I couldn't 100% confirm. I know he dies fighting Eclipso, and I think it's in that last issue. David Knight debuted a little bit earlier as a, a classic style star man in issue number 26 of that title from September of 1990. He was looking to take his father's name back. The two star men fought Ted's old foe, The Mist, who for some crazy name renamed himself Nimbus, and he got possession of the Cosmic Converter Belt. I just actually got those two comics. It's a two-parter, 26 and 27. I actually just got those two in the mail just yesterday. the other, just yesterday, yeah. you know, just to kind of look over. It's interesting. Some of the stuff in it doesn't quite jive up with what we'll read here, but this is obviously the introduction of David Knight, right. who is an important character in the book. It's funny because they, they call the Cosmic Converter Belt the cosmic converter belt but the cosmic rod is called the star scepter throughout the story so i don't know if they were trying to get away from the the uh, kind of you know <laughs> everybody kind of snickers when you say cosmic rod at first you know so i don't know if they're trying to get away and what at one point will payton doesn't know what to call it and he calls it the cosmic prod <laughs> that's not <laughs> that's, any better that's worse <laughs> not any better I think your mind's just in the gutter, honey. Okay. Well, come on, look at it. <laughs> There's a reason they changed the look of it as the series goes on. Kind of looks like that piece of out of Play-Doh here that been in the news. Oh, lately. that ex- that cake extruder yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a little you know the cosmic suggestive co- cosmic marital aid. Oh. Uh, <laughs> Continue. we got to get off. <clears throat> a past anyway. story of Ted Knight in the JSA is featured in the Justice Society of America miniseries that ran uh, from April to November 1991. That's actually the first comic that had the actual Justice Society of America name as its title. Not long after that, the JSA, along with Ted Knight, returned from limbo in Armageddon Inferno Number no. 4, July 1992, which is a horrible miniseries besides the fact that it gave us the JSA back. Oh, God, that's awful. Anyway, Ted Knight, in a slightly revised costume with green cow instead of red cow, appeared in the revised JSA's ongoing series, which ran 10 issues from August 1992 through April 1993. And uh, that was by Lynn Strzewski and Mike Pyrebeck. That was a great series. And I actually understand it was selling pretty well, and there were some people at DC that wanted it gone because they felt like that it wasn't, you know, hip and edgy enough and was, you know, making DC look bad because they had a bunch of old farts running around in costume, which was just ridiculous. And those same people got their retribution on the JSA in a little bit. We'll get to that. In 1993, an alternate take on the JSA's past was published as the Elseworlds miniseries The Golden Age by James Robinson and Paul Smith. Ted Knight plays a key role in this series. And even though this series is considered an Elseworlds, within the Starman series... There's quite a bit of reference to this, so uh, it's kind of not an Elseworlds within right. within this series. The JSA is decimated in Zero Hour Crisis in Time number three from September 1994. Several members were killed, and others, including Ted, were changed to reflect an appearance closer to their actual chronological age. Years ago, in All Star Squadron Annual number three, Roy Thomas established just how the JSA had were still so vital and you know, fairly youthful mm-hmm. uh, when they were probably in their 60s and the 80s, you know, and uh, they had absorbed some chronal energy, some time energy from 
Ian Carcool hit when he they fought him and he like exploded and all the JSAers, including Starman, who just showed up, he showed up just in time to absorb that energy. Uh, I had to throw that in because Shag just loves the fact when everybody brings up that Ian Carcool story because it's in every Who's Who entry that the JSA that involved the JSA and right. he just loves bringing it up. So I threw that in there for for him. But uh, yeah, that whole thing in Zero Hour, I was just. Zero Hour itself was kind of fun, and, and I liked parts of it, but what they did at the JSA was just criminal. Oh, I remember, because you read the comic first, and you threw it down <laughs> and stomped off through the house, cussing. <laughs> and I picked it up, and I, you know, I was like, Ooh. Well, I mean, they just show up in, like, Extant, who is freaking Hawk, with, yeah. you know, time powers, just wipes them out. I mean, these guys have fought real villains before, and this is freaking... Hawk Monarch Extant, you know, yeah. I'm like, oh, God, you know, it's just, and I, it, it, it's funny because, you know, this was, in, 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 and even though they're in the middle of this crisis, Jay Garrick and Alan Scott just like, ah, oh, we quit, forget it, and they walk away. Yeah. I'm just like, no, no, you, oh, <laughs> just, oh. oh, that made me mad. Luckily, folks like Mark Wade were just like, no. I'm not going to pay any attention to that. And, you know, in a couple months, Jay was running around like he was before in The Flash. So, but Ted does appear to be older here, but he's still not, you know, old, ancient, 80-some-year-old man, you know. So, that's good. Zero Hour number two, because the series counted backwards from, like, four to zero, introduces Jack Knight as a now-aged Ted hands over his cosmic rod to David, and he officially becomes Starman. Finally. David becomes Starman. David becomes, yes, David becomes Starman. After Zero Hour concluded, DC released a Zero issue for every title, including new ones launching out of the series like Starman. Mm-hmm. So, with all that out of the way, we'll actually get to Starman number zero from October 1994, it was on sale August 23rd, 1994. Sins of the Father, Part 1, Falling Star, Rising Sun. James Robinson, writer. Tony Harris, pencils. Wade Von Grawbadger, inks. John E. Workman, letterer. Gregory Wright, colors. Jim Spivey, associate editor. Archie Goodwin, editor. Opal City, amidst the Art Deco grandeur and the Victorian Foundation, stands a champion. Perched atop one of the city's gleaming spires, he surveys all he protects. Satisfied that his new crusade is off to a solid start, David Knight, Starman, smiles, and stellar-powered cosmic rod in hand, takes flight. Then his chest explodes as a sniper's bullet pierces his heart. His lifeless body plummets to the street below. Earlier in the observatory on the estate of Ted Knight, David and his younger brother Jack argue. As her father, Ted, tries to intercede, Jack insults David's role as Starman and the family legacy as well. Ted asks his youngest son to leave, and David flies off to go to work as Starman. We follow Jack on his daily rounds as he makes his way to his antique and collectible store, Nights Past, in the heart of Opal City's Alley's District. There, later that night, he receives the call from his father. His brother is dead. Ted warns Jack that he fears something is amiss. He tells Jack to find the box of journals he asked him to keep. Inside that box is a cosmic rod and the cosmic belt once used by the star-spangled kid. A reluctant Jack agrees to find the box since his father fears more reprisals may occur. As a wary Ted Knight leaves his estate, on his way to positively identify his eldest son's lifeless body, his house explodes. 
He is knocked unconscious by the debris as a strange woman looks on. As he tries to sort through his complex feelings concerning his brother, Jack Knight's shop is visited by a strange customer in sunglasses. Jack quickly realizes that the man is an assassin. He flees as the man opens up with a gun that fires both bullets and flames. Jack's martial arts training saves him as he scurries toward his father's box. The hitman recognizes the cosmic belt and takes it, leaving Jack for dead in the burning building. To seal the deal, he tosses a grenade in as he leaves the engulfed store. As he laments the loss of his store's irreplaceable inventory, Jack finds the cosmic rod and activates it. He flies high above Opal as the store he loved explodes. Later, the hitman and mysterious woman meet and converse with their father. The woman, Nash, pleases her father with the news that Ted Knight is still alive. The son, Kyle, reports that Jack Knight, however, is dead. The father, known as Starman's longtime enemy, the Mist, is pleased. A broken and bloody Jack Knight shambles through the streets of Old Opal, making his way to his father. After all, with Davy dead, he's Starman, and I'm not. I remember buying this right off the stands. Starman was the only zero-hour launch I was yeah, I was interested in. I think I'd always liked, of course, I always loved the JSA, but I think one reason I particularly liked Starman was because he appeared in The Brave and the Bold number 182, which was the Batman Earth 2 Robin team up mm. by Alan Brennard that we covered with Rob on here. Right, 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 right. So he was a, kind of a side character in that. Well, his Cosmic Rod was the kind of the whole part of the plot on that one the covers for this entire series are gorgeous and the, and the first one was no exception it honestly looks quite a bit like harris's work later in the series so it makes you wonder if he didn't like work up the issues and then paint later or he had just kind of adopted a different style for his painting and and kind of changed his penciling style to match his pencils in this first one are, are more abstract than in later issues and they're reminiscent of his studio mate brian stelfreeze who did a lot of Batman covers at the time. You see Jack in his quote-unquote costume and holding the longer cosmic staff, but we'll get back to that later. So on the first page we see Opal City, and it's got a very Art Deco look to it. It's kind of reminiscent of Gotham from the then-running Batman, the animated series, and Central City from the Flash TV series a few years prior to this. Opal, it's, it's said to have been founded by Burnley Ellsworth. Now that is a name that comes from, of course, Jack Burnley, and then Whitney Ellsworth, who was a longtime DC editor. It said he made his fortune in Australian gem mining, so that's why it's called Opal City. Right. Makes sense. The opening narration describes Ted Knight as a champion, a godly-dressed coyote, pure and true, but cursed with perpetual melancholy, as coyotes often are. This kind of points toward Robinson's depiction of Ted Knight as someone who suffered from Bouts with Depression in his Golden Age miniseries. Right. Essentially what it is is that they, in that in the that version and then later here, Ted Knight helped contribute to the atom bomb. Right. And his guilt over it, you know, drove him temporarily insane. Well, I mean, there's been actual books about, and books and research and everything else. There's been numerous books about people that did work on the atom bomb that felt tremendous guilt even though they were helping the war effort and even though they were, you know, yay America, but at the same time, their work led to the death of thousands, you know. Right. So, of course, they 
having a conscience suffered from bouts of depression. So that leads into that. Right. And there's numerous books about that, both as a group, as based on the group of researchers as a whole and on individual experiences as well, individual right. biographies. Right, right, yeah. So, yeah, that was nice, you know, giving him some depth right off the bat there. Uh, and like I said, this this series, in a, in a lot of ways this series spins out of the Golden Age, even though, again, it's in Elseworlds, and this is set very firmly in the DCU, even coming out of a series that, you know, redefined the DC Universe like a re-reboot, you right. know, uh, which was Zero Hour was supposed to be, was to, to um, you know, redefine some things from Crisis and straighten some continuity issues up and things like that. So it's kind of funny that an Elseworlds <laughs> series was so instrumental in getting this one off the ground. It made, made it, now this is going with the topic up above it, but, you know, it said the fictional Ellsworth made his fortune in Australian gem mining, hence the name Opal City. I can't help it. It immediately put me in mind of the Phantom. Oh, You yeah. know, uh, with old Zane. What's his name? Billy Zane. With the Billy Zane, you know, because he had the gems that his father had had and he went back and, you know. He, oh, yeah. I mean, that's just what I thought of. Well, that's true. The, and it has that same Art Deco look that movie does. And right. So. Well, and, you know, the whole deal with the Phantom, uh, the legend of the Phantom is it's a lineage thing. Right. It's I mean, that's what down. it paid me and put me in mind of. Right. Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, just that particular line. Yeah. So David Knight has made Starman and Zero Hour officially, and then he's killed on page three of the first issue. Now, that's I mean, how you start off a series. You're just like, what? <laughs> well, you know, I kind of wondered, I, I think... It's hard for me to remember exactly, but I remember that scene in Zero Hour, and I'd seen the promotional materials for for Starman, and I'm like, I'm thinking, okay, you know, this he doesn't look like Starman. He's got the cosmic rod or some kind of, you know, but he's, you know, and and he's handing it off to to David in the book, but this guy next to him looks like the guy in the comics. There's going to be some switch going on, but I didn't expect him to get. Killed right. On I page tried three. to step day on, or you know, yeah. decide it wasn't for him or something. Right. David and Jack argue over big little books. Uh, Jack wants to buy them, but David won't sell even if he doesn't want them. I think that's the whole relationship in a nutshell, and we'll talk about that especially in the last issue of this arc. But they were brothers that were constantly at each other. Right. Yeah. And I mean, it's one of those cases. You know what? I'm never going to use this, but you know what? You can't have it simply yeah. because you do want it. Right. I mean, that's pretty much what he tells them. It's it's he's basically like, look, I don't expect you to give it to me. I'll buy it off of you. And he's like, no, I'm not going to let you have it. I mean, it's just you know. <laughs> but then, uh, you know, then Jack goes and insults the family name because he tells him. Oh, he, looks he like went a, too far. He looks like a goofball. You know, <laughs> it's just. Uh, you know, he, he Robinson establishes that sketchy relationship and Ted's disappointment in Jack in two pages. That's right. a two page sequence. Yeah. That's the crux of the whole series. Yeah. That, exactly. I mean that's that's the that's the foundation of the series, those two pages. Yeah. Because I mean, you know, things improve between Jack and Ted over the years, but I mean it's you know, it's a slow process. I mean, they make progress through this storyline, but it's a slow process, and, and you know, the, the the relationship with David is still part of the series without getting too much into it. But the thing is, I mean, and that is true about any human relationship. There's no easy fixes. You no. have a lifetime of hurts and disappointments on both sides, 
And you can't fix them with a light switch. Right, right. I mean, they go back and forth. You know, they'll make some progress here, and then they'll lose ground, you know. In but that's what I like about this series. It's actual. It's not, like I said, it's not a quick fix. It's not a soap opera, everything's hunky-dory right. the very next day. Right, right. Yep. On his way to the store, Jack encounters characters that'll pop up again later. And he notices a fortune teller shop that he never noticed before. This will be important later. Just, you know. Keep that in mind. Put a, little, put a pin in it, as they say. <laughs> Oh my gosh, it made me think of Bolt, Disney's Bolt. Let's put a pin in it. <laughs> yeah. As a collector and lover of all things old, at least from the 20th century, uh, I immediately felt a kinship to Jack. You the know. things that he kept naming off, I'm like, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, you know. Yeah. And I mean, even though it's not necessarily something that we might not collect, it's stuff that I know what it is because we do collect other right. stuff. Right, exactly. So. Yeah. As Jack's potentially dying in the fire, he thinks about his brother and then all the wonderful things that are burning around him. When he mentioned the Captain Action Mint in a Box, I almost cried. Aww. Every time that gets to me, I'm just like, oh, God, just think of Captain Action sitting in his box just melting while the box is on fire. Think about if they were super queens. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> think about that. <laughs> That's even worse. Exactly. Uh, he's got an ideal... Uh, Justice League of America place it on fire. <laughs> oh, or the puppet theater. Oh, gosh. Uh, the mist being the big bad wasn't really surprising. But Robinson and Harris, they gave him, like, he's got, an, he's got a sickly grandeur about him. He actually debuted in Adventure Comics number 67 uh, from 1941, so he goes way back. Uh, I actually first encountered him in the, that uh, great JLA-JSA crossover by Jerry Conway and George Perez where they fought Secret Society of Supervillains and The Mist was a member of that version. This is probably one of the best first issues of any comic I've ever read. They really established the setting. Opal becomes a character mm-hmm. in the book. I mean, you, you know, it's it's I mean in one issue you feel like you feel more you like you know Opal better than almost any of DC's fictional cities. Right. Uh, and that's one thing Robinson said in the text piece. He wanted to have a fictional city. He didn't want to put it in New York or Chicago or something. He he liked DC's fictional cities because he felt like you could create a character. You could you know you could create a place that you'd like to go to that you could do something with, and it wouldn't feel false. Uh, well, like you've always heard the heart of the city, the pulse of the city. By it being a fictional city, you can create that. Right, right. You know? Yeah, exactly. That text page at the back, it's a, it's an admittedly rambling piece by Robinson, but it, it establishes that the very personal nature of this book because you get the idea that Robinson isn't too far removed from, from Jack. Right. And, in fact, Tony Harris and Jack resemble one another. I mean, so uh, I think he was a good combination of these two creators. I mean, essentially, he was the look of, of, of Harris and the, the personality. personality of Robinson. So, you got anything else on that first zero, well, zero issue? No, I'm good. <laughs> it gets confusing because I, I know zero issues are fairly common, but, you know, it's, it's, you keep wanting to say it's number one, but no, it's, it's number zero. So, well, we'll move along to Starman number one from November 1994. It was on sale September 20th, 1994. Sins of the Father Part 2, Oil, Paint, and Water. Paints in parentheses. There's several titles in here where they use parentheses. Like, how are you supposed to say that? Right. Man. <laughs> no. uh, same credits as before, but now we have Chuck Kim as assistant editor. Okay. 
With Opal City under the siege of an orchestrated wave of crime and mayhem, a shadowy gentleman laments what has befallen his city. And remind, that's very crucial, his city. Right. Meanwhile, Jack Knight makes it to the hospital and finds his recovering father. Jack is treated for a gunshot wound, but suffers even greater wounds from his father's words. After he informs his son what he holds is an earlier gravity rod and not the more powerful cosmic model, he chastises Jack for losing the cosmic belt to his brother's killer. He then calls Jack a coward, lamenting that his heroic son is dead while the junk dealer lives. Oof. A dejected Jack meets the O'Dares, a clan of cops pledged to help the Knight family due to Ted saving their father during his Starman days. Ted receives a call from the Mist, who takes credit for the chaos as the city ignites in flames. Literally, it's on fire. Mm -hmm. He threatens to take everything he holds dear before killing him, even the memory of his dead wife. Ted tells Jack to leave town, and the younger knight soon finds himself at the bus station. But before he can board, he hears a radio report concerning an assault on the Adele Knight Wing of the Opal Museum. To his surprise, Jack soon finds himself on the scene, using the gravity rod against the criminals, razzing his mother's gift to the city. His actions catch the attention of the media, who proclaim that Starman is alive, but the shadowy gentleman knows this is not David Knight, but his younger brother. Jack finds himself enjoying his victory until Kyle appears, wearing the cosmic belt. In the melee, Jack is shot and falls into the harbor. Back at the museum, a duo of looters are stopped by the shadowy gentleman. He doesn't appreciate them lifting the artwork and unleashes a deadly shadow demon upon them. The Shade then takes a small piece for himself in exchange for his good deed. He laments the apparent death of Jack Knight, believing he may have been the champion the city had been lacking since the days of a certain Native American lawman. Now, you, now I will say this. He's been shot twice. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Jack rises from the harbor, the gravity rod lost. His every instinct tells him his father is right. He's not a hero. He should follow his father's advice and leave town. He can't help Opal. After arguing with himself, there's only one rational decision to make. He's going back. <laughs> yeah. On the cover, Jack wears a Jolly Roger t-shirt. That's the name of Harris's studio, which it repeats a lot throughout the series. You'll see it. On the cover and in the comic... The Mist Gang is wearing masks that look like either a Scarecrow or a Raggedy Andy, honestly. Uh, this isn't a random thing. This will come back up later in the series, not too far down the road. The Shade, of course, is an old Golden Age DC villain. Dates back to Flash Comics number 33 from September of 1942. He was primarily a Flash foe, but he went on to fight both the JSA and the JLA. The Shade's shown writing in his own journal. A good chunk of the series will actually be told from the journal. Mm -hmm. One thing that, that's different, the Shade is, according to his Who's Who entry and other comics, before this, it seemed like his his shadow power came from his cane. But this comes from... Within. Within himself. So, you know, De Robinson's definitely taking a character and making it his own. And he right. does. Ted rips Jack a new hole. He kind of had it coming, but damn. Brutal. He damn. I mean, Brutal. it's just like, oh, man. And Hope O'Dare's like, he's had a rough night, so, you know. <laughs> uh, and we meet the O'Dare's, but we only know there are three brothers and one sister right now. Uh, the sister being Hope, and the only brother that's named is Dan, and he's the mustachioed one. Uh, and he'll be a fairly prominent character down the road as well. When the uh, Shade actually conjures up that shadow demon, that splash is actually pretty frightening. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, Har his, Harris's art like just kicked up. 
a notch in this issue. I mean, it like keeps just going up, but it's it's like jumped by leaps and bounds from the last one, and the last one was bad. You know, Robinson's dropping hints to storylines that are pretty far off in the future. Of course, that uh, line about Shade in the Native American Lawman, you know, is something that's going to come back up. On the uh, the text page on this one, you got bios of Robinson, Harris, and Von Grawbadger. I just like saying Von Grawbadger. <laughs> what what did you think of uh, about this one? I mean, it's one of those things. He wants to, you know, he wants to do good. The Shade sees in him potential. I mean, his dad rips him a new one, but then you wonder, you know, wow, you know, it, is it that justified that he rips him that hard? Right. Well, I think, you know, I don't want to get too far because we're, you know, we're going to get there. I think I think we'll probably save... Oh, I'm, I'm telling you as from this, yeah. as you're reading. Yeah, so as just you're... Just keep, keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, you know, it's like, and, you know, he tells Jack to leave town and Jack's like, okay, you know, it's like, you know, this ain't my gig. I'm not into this. You know, I didn't sign up for this. You know, I can't help it. My da- it's basically like I can't help it. My dad's star man. I mean, that's well. It's one of those things that everybody in this particular city knew who Starman was. Right. They there is no secret identity. No. So no. you know, it makes sense to remove anybody that's connected to Starman. Right. Well, I mean, he's already. They think he's dead anyway. I mean, they. They Kyle thinks he succeeded uh-huh. in killing in killing Jack, so you know that's what Ted tells him. You know, you, you know, you need to leave town, get out now. But when he hears that about his mother, and you get the impression that even from this issue, and, and as the series uh, goes on, goes along, you're, you you know it's confirmed that Jack is basically Jack is more like his mother mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, he's an artist. Um, he's a you know he's got that he's he's got that artistic bent. Uh, he's a humanitarian type where Ted's a science type. Mm-hmm. He's a humanities guy where Ted is a science guy. You know, so it uh, you know it makes sense. He goes back and and you know to protect his mother's memory. You know, right. basically is is what what gets him going. But there'll be more to talk about when we get to the uh, the next two issues. Actually, I think it's probably a good idea to take a break. And when we come back, we'll talk about issue number two and number three. You like cheap comic books, right? Well, I'm Professor Allen, and I talk about cheap comic books on the Quarterbin Podcast. In every episode, I'll dissect a single comic from my collection, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for the issue. Forget about $4 new comics that you can read in four minutes, or crossover events that can cost 100 bucks to collect. Join me in the quarter bin, where even bad comics are a bargain, and good ones are a steal. The Quarter Bin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Visit us at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search Relatively Geeky or Quarter Bin Podcast in iTunes. I guarantee it'll be worth every penny. Okay, so we're back from our break. We're going to talk about Starman number two from December 1994. It actually says 95 on the cover. I noticed that. So it's like December 95. I, just when I was looking at our, my copy. It's on sale October 18th, 1994. Sins of the Father Part 3, Mercy. Same creative team as before. At his apartment, Jack Knight cobbles together a costume. 
just in case he has to play superhero again. He grabs a thick leather jacket to protect him from the cold winds in the sky. He wonders if his father will approve of the astrological star on the back. He knows he will approve of the 10 star sheriff's badge from a Cracker Jack box. But one thing's for certain, he's only doing this until Opal's out of danger. He is not Starman. In case he can get another rod from his father, he grabs a pair of World War II anti-flare goggles and wonder why his father never thought of it. All the while, his apartment is being watched. Meanwhile, the Shade visits it with his old ally in crime, the Mist. The old, ethereal villain seems addled, forgetting much of his history and also forgetting his visitor is immortal. This seems like an important thing to forget. Yeah. Jack is ambushed as he leaves his apartment, but manages to evade the Mist men across the rooftops. He seems to have help from an unknown friend who slashes at some of the gang with a sword. But before he can investigate, Nash, the missed daughter, stops Jack at gunpoint. The stuttering young woman clearly doesn't want to kill anyone and lets Jack go. Looking for refuge, Jack stops at the new fortune teller shop near his old store. The owner and proprietor Charity tells Jack that his destiny is unshakable. She tells him of many adventures she sees ahead for him. Jack returns to his father's hospital room, where he tries to convince his father, despite his selfless actions last night, that he is not Starman. Then he asks for another cosmic rod. Ted recalls a larger prototype version he has in storage. At their secret meeting, the Shade and the Mist cut a deal. Jack finds his father's storage facility in a spare Starman costume, which is not for him. But the staff-like cosmic rod? It feels right. Ted Knight lies in the hospital bed and thinks about his sons. How David, despite his noble efforts, was never cut out for the hero business. It was Jack all along. He knew that when he was born. Then the Shade takes out the Odairs guarding the room and reminds him he could have killed them all, but he didn't. His shadows take Ted Knight with him, off to rendezvous with the Mist. Later, the Mist calls Jack, who agrees to do whatever it takes to get his father back before threatening to kill them all if he is harmed. Despite his bravado, he knows this time there's no bluffing. This time, he must be the hero. So this has got another great cover by Harris. Jack's hair looks a little long, though. It's got the He-Man, I have the power! He's <laughs> on the cosmic rod. Fabulous secrets were revealed to me the day I held aloft my cosmic rod and said... <laughs> Uh, By the power of Opal. Sorry. <laughs> you digress. <laughs> uh, the shades, uh, shadow demons around his face are really creepy. It's it's cool. They, they they should do like a giant art book of these covers. You know, like a big, oh, yeah. huge. They should, that, that would be cool. When Jack spies a Cracker Jack badge, uh, you can see pins of the shadow, Mickey Mouse, in the corner of what looks like a Batman symbol. Oh, yeah. And true. DC Direct actually made the badge, and I've got it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So we'll get more more on that later, but yeah. Jack also has a poster of Boris Karloff from The Mummy. He's got great taste. Jack wears the Raggedy Andy shirt throughout this issue. Again, more on that another time. The Mist misremembers killing Wildcat with the Shade in 72. Shade corrects him that it was the Mist only, and he killed the Invisible Hood in 74. Mist also misremembers a caper with the icicle. So you can tell this guy has at least dementia, if not Alzheimer's. Right, yeah. So. Yeah, couldn't happen to a nicer guy. Mm. <laughs> However, that makes him even more dangerous. Yeah, it I does. mean, that really does. Right. The fact that 
not only is he evil, but he's Fruit Loops evil does not help. Right, yeah. And the thing with the mist, which I didn't write down in the notes and doing some research on it, he had started out in the forties, he had an invisio solution that he could use to make people invisible or parts of his body invisible and it looked like he was like a floating a floating head and hands and his you know, like his torso his his like his cloak was invisible, but later on he became mist like and could, you know, go through objects and things like that so it's kind of i don't i can't remember you don't really get to see him do a whole lot here i can't remember when he shows up later on in the series spoiler of course he shows up later on in the series uh that he that if if he um you know has that power or not we'll we'll find out again as we read so jack's fighting on the rooftops as he leaves his apartment mm-hmm. and uh he's talking about how even some of the cornier guys from his dad's days would do a better job than him and he names off People like Neon the Unknown, Stormy Foster, and the Human Bomb. Uh, so that just goes to show you, Jack no- knows more about his dad's life than he than lets, he, on, than he lets yeah. on, or he wouldn't know. The Human Bomb, you know, but Stormy Foster, Neon the Unknown, I mean, you know, they're very obscure. <laughs> Needless to say, the mysterious sword-wielding figure helping Jack will come up again later. No spoilers, but of course he will, because, you know, it's just a random shadowy figure with sword <laughs> yeah, that's kind of, you know, there's got to be more to it. But stay tuned, folks. Right. But wait. The there's worst more. is yet to come. Uh, the better, actually. So Robinson takes a page from Neil Gaiman in his Sandman series and picks a character from the uh, old DC's old mystery titles as a supporting character. Charity, the fortune teller, was the hostess of the Dark Mansion of Forbidden Love, which debuted in September, October of 71. That was an experimental mashup of mystery and romance titles in the vein of all those gothic uh, romance novels you used to see on Spinner Rack mm. when we were kids. You know, I guess you kind of still see them now, but but they're more, you know, er, they're more erotic and, you know, vampire bitey stuff. They were more ghost story type stuff back then. The title was eventually renamed Forbidden Tales of Dark Mansion, and it more or less became a standard mystery title before being canceled with issue number 15. Which she points, she even talks about her dark mansion. Oh and, yeah, and I mean, she and she talks about she makes some crap crack about it was down south and people with their you know ha- their cousins and having affairs with their cousins and stuff oh, like yeah. that. I was like, wait, it's kind of funny. It's like, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> we live in the south. We almost, live, sort of. Yeah, we're kind of well. People associate us with that. I mean, we really don't technically. We're not in the south south, but yeah. Anyway, Jack finds it mysterious how Charity's shop just seemingly appeared in issue number zero, but she shrugs it off and says, yeah, it's real mysterious. Some big guys in a big van move my stuff in. <laughs> Which I think is funny. You know, she didn't go, the hoary host of Hoggeth, you know, let me in. And, you know, she's kind of... You just didn't happen to be looking out your window when I moved in, Yeah, buddy. that's right. You were busy doing something else. Charity mentions feeling drawn to Turk County, which is north of Opal. It's also called Dead Turk County, and uh, it's a very ominous-sounding place. And, of course, that's another seed that Robinson's planning Mm -hmm. for later. Charity tells Jack's fortune, and besides revealing that his destiny is set, she sees him in the Far East, outer space, meeting up with Hawkman and having a wild night at the circus. Two of these storylines will never come to fruition in these pages. And we won't tell you which ones those are. (laughs) But I will say, though... Robinson really and truly, you can say, or I think, he had this series mapped out. Oh, yeah. 
I mean, and he knew this, I'm going to do this, 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 and this in this pretty much order. And he knew where he was going. He was able to drop these hints and things along the way. And then you were later able to see them to fruition. Right. It's not just the way comics are today. They're like, huh, this month I think I'll do this. Next month, hmm, I don't know, I might do that. And they don't pick up threads ever again. Yeah. Or it's that, it's that you know, X-Men style where they, they plant seeds that they never revisit. And, and you know, they just keep throwing, you know, they got a freaking garden of seeds growing. And it's like all these different... Right. Vegetables and you know, but but uh, well, I mean, that's one of those cases where you have all of these threads and you never tie the bow, right? He ties the bow on 98% of what he's got, yeah. Actually, what I meant, uh, you know, and that, that did kind of come out like I'm saying it, it that that uh, that he didn't follow up on stuff. That's not what I meant. Uh, one of the things that one of, one of the storylines that doesn't come to fruition is just because of editorial flanangling at DC. I mean, that's all it amounts to. Uh, the other one is a story that he still wants to tell someday, but they've talked about doing it and we've just never gotten around to it. Uh, and we'll get to that eventually, but I won't tell you which one that is because that would kind of spoil what's coming up. But Jack's, uh, Jack and Ted's exchange sum up the early days of the, of the series here. Jack says, but, but, but nothing. I am not Starman. Anyway, I need another cosmic rod. <laughs> and Ted says, really? That's just what I expect a not star man to say, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love it. It's awesome. Ted refers to having two of the larger prototype cosmic rods. One was broken in the first week of 1950 in Washington. This, again, is a direct callback to supposedly not in continuity miniseries The Golden Age. Uh, and I will not spoil... Do what happened? Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I will not spoil what happens with that broken cosmic rod. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you've read that. I know, but trying to pull uh, it out of my head. Yeah, that's like that's one of those. <gasps> kind of, you know, wow, it's awesome. Anyway, uh, Jack wonders why his dad never told him of this storage facility. It looks like the Batcave's rummage sale. It's even got the giant T-Rex. Right, right. And in the, in the front, you can see the Cyclops from a Ray Harryhausen movie. I don't remember which... Everybody's like, I know which Harryhausen movie it is. I can't think of what it is off the top of my head, but it's the Cyclops with the horn from Ray Harryhausen movie. What I think's hilarious is his dad, Ted Knight, the scientist, collector, just like Jack. Mm-hmm. Just Good like point. Jack. Good point. He, why would he keep all that stuff? Yeah. From all of his cases. And, just a yeah. collector just like him. He just, he did, just didn't want to, anybody to know he was he a collector. He just didn't wear it as a, yeah. as a badge <laughs> like he did. When they capture Ted, you see when he calls, when the mist calls Jack, they've got Ted tied up got in the it. corner and he's got like a star-studded uh, uh, sorcerer's hat on his head to kind of make him look more like Starman, I guess. Mm -hmm. He's got him tied up, which is kind of telling. The text page of this issue has the first installment of uh, from the Shades Journal. This is an ongoing feature that will pop up in the book from time to time, in addition to the Shades Journal being the, the narrative tool in the comic itself. In this entry, he reminisces about his old friend Oscar Wilde and the time in London when he realized he wasn't going to age. He visited Tiger Bay for the last time during this period, and that's where he became the Shade, but we're not told how. It's very mysterious and is, remains very mysterious for a long time. As he writes, he hears of David Knight's death. 
This takes him back to the star man of the 1950s when Ted was recovering from those injuries in Washington that, that we just talked about. The identity of this mystery star man, that will carry on throughout the series. Mm-hmm. And you don't find out till way late. You're way late. Till the very end. That's pretty much the last storyline. I was going to say, it's right. Yeah, it's pretty much the last major storyline. So, yeah. And, of course, that keys off of the storyline we mentioned of Batman. You know, but obviously, it can't, in this continuity, it can't be Batman. You know, so. Or can it? Bum, bum, bum. (laughs) So, we'll move on to the final chapter of Sins of the Father. That is in Starman number three from January 1995. It was on sale November 22nd, 1994. Sins of the Father, Part 4, Night Flight. And it's another one of those period things where it's Night F, and then the period, the L's inside, I mean, sorry, it's the L's inside parentheses, and so it's Night Fight and Night Flight. So, I don't know how the hell you say that. (laughs) Night Fight, Night Night Flight. (laughs) The same creative team here, although strangely minus Jim Spivey, associate editor. I don't know if he left the book or or what. As Jack prepares to duel with Kyle in the sky man-to-man, Hope O'Dare gushes on his heroic act. Jack will have none of it as he remembers his brother. His memory of David being excited over a Viewmaster reel of their father is quickly corrected. It was he himself, Jack, who was so excited to see his father, the superhero, who he one day wanted to be like. Meanwhile, Nash is worried for her brother's safety. She tells him he is the only one she can talk to. He assures her Jack Knight is a loser and he'll be fine and hands her his signature sunglasses to look after. Jack and Kyle meet in the sky, Cosmic Rod versus Cosmic Belt, both creations of Ted Knight. As they battle, Jack's thoughts turn to his father and brother and his relationship with both. Meanwhile, the O'Dares are visited by the Shade. He admits to only taking Ted so that he can get in with the Mist and learn his plans. He offers to take them to the villain's lair. As the O'Dares and the Shades storm the Knight family mausoleum, the fight between Jack and Kyle intensifies. Jack remembers as many good times as bad with his brother. Kyle asks him how it feels to die fighting for a brother he didn't even like. Jack responds, Firstly, I'm not dead. And secondly, I may not have liked my brother, but I loved him. He impales Kyle as his body explodes with stellar energy. As his enemy's bones disintegrate, Jack realizes he still isn't sure how he feels about his brother and his death, but he does realize he will never kill again. Jack rejoins the O'Dares at the mausoleum. The Mist and Nash have been captured, and the Shade leaves Jack a cryptic note about meeting him later. A raving Nash laments how she let Jack live earlier only to have him kill her beloved brother. She takes her brother's sunglasses and promises retribution never stuttering. The addled mist is just tired and wants to lie down. He asks for his son to bring him some hot tea. Ted Knight takes no satisfaction in seeing his old foe taken away. He feels there is no victory in any of this other than he and Jack are alive. Later at the observatory where he created the cosmic rod, father and son strike a deal. Jack will continue as his own brand of Starman. If Ted agrees to spend his genius on developing ways to utilize cosmic energy for the betterment of the world. Ted readily agrees, confessing that he knew Jack would agree to play the hero. After all, if you're not Starman, who else is there? Epilogue 1. We then cut to a circus in a tent labeled Cosmic Geek. 
Inside, chained to a wall, sits an emaciated blue man with a jewel embedded in his chest. Once, he was Starman. Epilogue 2. On an alien world beyond a statue of a fallen hero, another hero stands suspended in a lab, wires and tubes flowing in and out of his body. This is Will Payton. Once, he too was Starman. Now that's a heck of a hook. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> old comic readers like me were like, hey, you know, and I, I didn't know who the blue star man was. I'll be honest. That was a, the first issue special. I had no idea. You know, clearly Robinson has done his research. He's digging up characters that everybody's forgotten. Mm-hmm. And he's playing in this playground. He's creating, he's, he's basically creating a playground, uh, you know, around comics that existed before. But it, he's making it all fit I mean he's changing things here and there but you know because Opal City he created I mean Starman before was said to have been in New York you know that was his base of operations in the golden age but you know he's he's establishing his own corner of the DC universe in the text piece earlier in the series Robinson had mentioned one of the things he's particularly fond of are Viewmaster reels, so it's not real surprising that it shows up here, but I would love to have a JSA Viewmaster set. Mm-hmm. That'd be awesome. <laughs> you imagine they used to do those uh, that where they used like the, the the 3D puppets, like the sculptures, like the, they had Bugs Bunny and things like that. They weren't cartoons. Right. Uh, if they did a JSA one like that, that'd been awesome. Is it just mirrors or some weird subtext in the Miss Nash relationship? It's a whole flowers in the attic kind of feel to it. Okay. <laughs> that I mean, that's what I got out of it. Like, the mist had hidden them away because you'd never heard about these kids until this series. And then suddenly, here they are. Kind of like he'd hidden them away until he could use them. And they were just themselves together all alone. And flowers in the attic, baby. Yeah, well, you know, you, you I mean, you can look at it as Ooh. she's got some mental problems. And, well, I mean, he's a you know, heartless killer. He's got mental problems too, but that she has like, you know, non, non homicidal mental problems to begin with. And, you know, he's the only one that can understand her, that can talk to her and she stutters, you know, she's got issues, but there just seems to be something creepy there. Again, flowers in the attic. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not just me. Okay. Okay. (laughs) There's a cute little bit, you know, the whole time Jack's fighting, Kyle in the sky he's thinking about his dad and he's thinking about his brother and he thinks about how he had this stack of of vinyl LPs from the 70s and he was listening to them to see if they had any scratches and his dad came in and it was the Hughes Corporation rock the boat mm-hmm. and his dad's like oh that singer sounds like Nat King Cole and at first Jack's like yeah right old man and he said but then he got to thinking about it and he's like oh he does sound like Nat King Cole yeah. and he does sound like Nat King Cole. If you think about, it. I was sitting there running the song through my head. It's like when the, when when the guys not during the when he's singing the actual uh, not the chorus but the verses. You know, it's yeah. like he does kind of sound like Nat King Cole. So. Again, I mean, you know, throughout the series, it kept pointing to Jack is Adele's son. Jack is Adele's son, but mm-hmm. there's a whole lot of Ted in there too. Right. I think on the surface. On the surface, the Jack that he has created as an adult is Adele's son. He has rejected the 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 Star Man side. He has rejected his father's science and his superheroics. But as a young boy, he loved it. 
mm-hmm. and it's part of him. He's been denying that part, and you know, and and this is about him accepting that, and you know, and as he remembers, like he remembers, he remembered the past wrong. He remembered his brother being excited about seeing his father mm-hmm. in those Viewmaster reels, and he remembered, you know, him saying his brother David saying, I want to be like Dad when I grow up. He said that. Right. And then when you see the scenes of of David and 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 Jack as as he's fighting and, you know, you get different scenes of him, there's actually a scene where David's just beat up a kid for picking on Jack and Jack's in a homemade Starman costume. Mm-hmm. So I mean that that just goes to show you it, it, he you know, that's in his rebellious young years, teen years, which we'll see more of in in later right. issues, uh, you know he he rejected his his father's legacy and, and his father really, but you know that's you know teens rebel often and then they come back around you know it's mm-hmm. it's kind of like Batman sixty six we were talking about last yeah. uh, in a way you rebel against this this is goofy it's ridiculous you know and then you come back around and say I like it you know it's like you know, you grow up enough to say, I'm okay with that. I right. like it, you know. And, uh, you know, that's kind of, you know, he's 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 grows up. I mean, he's a, obviously in his, his 20-something-year-old man here. He's, he's not a, he's not like, I always kind of pictured, I don't think they ever say how old Jack is, but I figured he was. About 26, 27. Yeah, some, somewhere between 24 and 28 or something like yeah. that. Yeah, right around in there. When, you, when you're starting to really know. Your, your teen years are over. Your college years are over. You're finally figuring out who you are, who you are. And usually you end up coming back to the person you were before you were a teenager. Because <laughs> your teenage years, you're an asshole. <laughs> so, Jack, you know, I was talking about Jack and David. He he thinks about, you see these flashbacks. You see Davey pulling Jack's hair, ripping up his Jerry Lewis comic, which I thought was funny pouring sand in his mouth and not apologizing for breaking Jack's vintage Roy Rogers cup after drinking in it. That's, that's a, it's, a, it's like my Roy Rogers cup's broken. He's like, yeah, sorry, man. I was, you know, drinking coffee and I broke it. He's like, well, you shouldn't be drinking in it. It's not a, it's not a cup. It's, it's a collectible. And he's like, dude, it's a cup. <laughs> yeah, it's, like, it's for drinking. It's out for of. drinking out of. And I'm just like, God, that's, you know, <laughs> that's, I, oh, that's, that's the same kind of things we, dealt with you know but uh uh over the years but then on the other hand you also see him with you know the homemade soapbox derby car and right david giving jack concert tickets for his birthday and yeah. you know defending i mean it's just defending the, him in the dichotomy of any sibling relationship right i mean there's good and there's bad you know the splash where the splash page where jack kills kyle it's really powerful it, it's it's like this it's it's I mean it's beautifully colored. I mean it's like mm-hmm. this red these reds and yellows. This his body just like erupts, but it's not it's it's frightening and violent, but it's not it's almost It's not gory. It's, hint hint it's not comic gory. artist out there. there. There's not limbs falling off, flying off everywhere, you know, <laughs> stuff. Uh and then you see his, his skeleton all blackened and just kind of falling apart, which but like I said, surprisingly it's not it's not over the top, you know, which you think as we just, you know, we're, he just shoved a, this thing in his chest and blew the guy up, you know. But uh, the, the note that Shade leaves for Jack reads, we'll meet, we'll talk. I have two gifts. That's it. So 
There you go. Set up. Needless to say, Nashville returned. Boy, will she ever. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> things gonna no get, spoilers. I know. Things going to get real. I'm not. No spoilers. We already talked about the blue the blue alien star man. So. The statue we see in the epilogue, uh, in the second epilogue, that's Prince Gavin. That's the, the eight, early 80s adventure comic star man. Uh, you know, obviously, Robinson's plan on tying him and, and Will Payton together somehow. So, overall thoughts on, on the opening storyline. You know, this, this storyline, <clears throat> it's, it's, it's great. It's a great story. It's satisfying in its own right, but it plants so many seeds for future storylines. And like we said, they, I mean, it runs, some of them aren't resolved until the very last issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, it's just, uh, you know, the plan, like you said, he must have had this just mapped out. I'm, I mean, I'm sure he changed, you know, some of the in-between the moments. the overall outline, the vote, you know. He had the, the hot spots. He had the mile markers all figured yes. out, you know. One thing that I think is interesting, Starman's tone, the whole tone of the series it bridged the gap between the main DC universe and the Vertigo titles. DC had just recently shuffled most of their weirder material over to the Vertigo imprint when it launched a year and a half before. So you had these DC titles like Sandman, Swamp Thing, Shade the Changing Man, that were Hellblazer, that were DC titles, and then they came up with the Vertigo imprint to put them under, and then they they you know started putting the Vertigo imprint on them. And some of the characters were still part of the DCU, but as time went on, they were less and less actually used in the DC universe. Mm-hmm. So Starman was kind of a, a bridge title between that. I mean, it was clearly based on, you know, the super heroic foundations of DC dating back to the 40s. But it was it was a much, you know, it did have that kind of edgy, weird, you know, college crowd vibe about it, you know. This very quickly became my favorite comic, and all in all, because it has a beginning and has an end, it overall is probably my favorite comic series. There was never a dip in the quality. Right. It was consistent. Robinson's voice was consistent. He's done things since this that I really don't like. Uh, some people joke about, well, there's the star man, James Robinson, James Robinson, and then there's the James Robinson that wrote Justice League and you know had speedy arm blown off and all that stuff uh so you know it, it there, there's two different james robinsons but this series just i mean it, it, it because no it never did have it, it's it's its own wonderful thing because nobody's mucked with it i don't know why robinson has used some of the characters from this but nobody has come to my knowledge and maybe i haven't been paying attention enough but it's it was insular, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it was its own thing, even though it existed within the DC universe and DC other DC universe characters appeared in it. He must have cut a pretty good deal because nobody messed with it, and right. nobody interfered with him with it really. And uh, it's it's a great ride. And if you haven't read it, then I hope this kind of provokes you to you know go out and get a digital copy if it's available. I'm, I'm assuming it is. There's omnibuses out there. Uh, I think they got the whole series collected in omnibuy, omnibuses. I don't know. Uh, I say that. Well, this series, I mean, it pretty much came out when you and I were in college mm-hmm. and carried us through college in the first year or so we were out. Right. Well, it so, ran from know, 94 to like 2001. Well, so that's, yeah, you know. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, we were out of college for a few years, but yeah. Yeah, it, 
Yeah, I mean, and I and I associate this with my college days. I, I associate this with my days buying comics from White Crow Comics at Moorhead, uh, Moorhead State University in Kentucky, Moorhead, Kentucky. That's where I ended up working there. Mm-hmm. And uh, in fact, one year, every year they'd have a Halloween party slash sale. That. And one year, I decided I'm going to go with Starman. So I got me. I had a leather jacket. I made me the uh, the astrological star symbol. Do you still have it? I still have it. It's in my long box with my Starman comics. Oh, okay. I, was I, like, I stuck it on a card back and stuck it in a bag and stuck it in there. I mean, I couldn't probably peel it off of it, but I kept it. And so I did that. I uh, got me a pair of... I had the badge because DC Direct made it. I got a, uh, a pair of... Uh, or they might have been DC Direct then. I think that was before they were called DC Direct. Um, I got a pair of welding goggles, close enough, uh, that looked like it. I actually grew a Jack later. Yeah, you grew a goatee. I grew a goatee. That's the only awesome. time I've ever had a goatee. I had a mustache back then, but I grew a goatee. Uh, Jack later on has a goatee off and on through the series. And I made a cosmic rod. Yeah. That worked, that lit up. Yeah. It was, it, it lasted one night only because it was very cobbled together. But I think the top of it, and his cosmic rod changes like the next issue it starts right. to change. I think you made it out of a, a detergent bottle. bottle. Yeah, I was gonna say a deter- yellow detergent. It's like a bottle, bottle of whisk or something. something. Yeah. yeah, and and uh, I have pictures. If we can find them, we will post them on Facebook. Right. Yeah. We we, we will. Yeah. And uh, and it, but yeah, I, I did, and I put the I put a flashlight up in the top of it. I mean, I made like the rod out of like a PVC pipe or something, and. I put a, you know, it bends, because later on it, his, his his cosmic rod bends up. And I put a flashlight, and I had, you know, I, I left the little switch so I could switch it on and off. And you went as Lois Lane. That year, yeah. And, and I went as uh, Jack Knight. So, um, speaking of which, this would make a great TV series. I mm-hmm. mean, the first, like, half season's right here. Right. I mean, this would make a great TV series. And in fact, at one time, while Smallville was on, there was actually a Starman series in early development. And it just kind of never went anywhere. This kind of puts me in mind, you said that about TV series, which I didn't realize that. But, you know, Peggy Carter has just come and gone. It just finished up its miniseries yeah, era. I hate that. But, <laughs> to me... I mean, I love Peggy Carter. I hate that it's gone. Yeah. Um... <laughs> This is one of those series that kind of, you know, that same Art Deco look, that same old feeling because he collects the old stuff. It's same, you know. Yeah. That same feeling that, I mean. Right. Well, and it's, you know, one thing about this series is, is as we'll see pretty soon in the whatever, I don't know how many issues we'll cover in the next episode. It depends on where we. Where the arc it, is. Where the arc is and where we fit it in. But one thing they do is the, the times past issues. And those are set in, you know, some are set in the 40s with Ted. Mm-hmm. Some are set farther back with the Shade uh, because he's immortal. Uh, can you imagine if they did a Starman series occasionally just doing a whole episode that's nothing but Ted in the 40s? Right. I mean, how cool would that be, you know? And I think now would be a great time because of the DC series like The Flash and Arrow, especially The Flash, and because of shows like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. where they, they have flashbacks to Peggy mm-hmm. and the Highland, the Highland Commandos. And then you've got the, the Agent Carter series. 
it would just work so well. And and I think the audience, because of movies like Captain America: The First Avenger, where you have a World War II superhero, and then you have uh, the ramifications of those adventures now, mm-hmm. then I think the uh, the general public's already accepting of that type of thing. Right. And I think it would work really well. I mean, you, you know, you you could even have like Jack Knight be the framing sequence, the beginning and ending, either of the episode or the series itself, but then have the majority set. Yeah, well, I'd, I'd like to see the majority of it set now, like based on this. But you could do, you know, you could have, uh, you could either have a, an actor that could play Ted as a young man, uh, a younger actor play Ted and then have him made up, or probably better to have an older actor play Ted now and then somebody, you know, on call that they, they could get to play consistent. Ted and flashbacks mm-hmm. in these times past, and uh, you know, with the shade, same actor can be used because right. he doesn't age. But you just, you know, you get an actor that that looks similar, you know, to the actor playing old Ted, you know. And uh, I think it'd be really cool. I mean, obviously, the effects wouldn't be a problem nowadays. No, 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 no. Um, and it, you know, it's it's got enough edgy. Plus, you'd have you you've got a ready-made superhero who doesn't wear a superheroy costume. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's, I mean, obviously we're getting kind of past that now, you know, with the Flash and stuff, but of course they got to make them not look like spandex and everything. But, I mean, you've got, you've got a guy that, that doesn't wear tights, and then you can kind of, you know, kind of like, uh, you know, Cap in the first Avenger movie in his uh, USO outfit. Right. Versus his actual uniform uh, in his, you know, modern uniforms. So I I think it's, I think this is a TV series that's just waiting to be made. I think it'd be great, uh, you know, Netflix, something like that. But I, I hope it's not Netflix because we can't freaking get Netflix. It's ridiculous. But, uh, but, <laughs> but, uh, we live out in the sticks, y'all. Because we live out in the sticks, y'all. But, uh, we got a cap on our bandwidth. Yeah, I think, I think that would be a, a great series. And if, if DC, if it Warners, if you've heard this and hadn't thought of that, then, then, then send the check to Chris Franklin, care of Supermates. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> P.O. Box. No, never mind. Well, I think that's all we got for this first episode. Mm-hmm. You know, we've we put a lot of effort and time into this one, so I don't really know what we're doing next. So uh, just stick with us, and we'll we'll find something fun. Got to do. any suggestions? Let us know. Got any comments? Let us. Yeah, know. Get, let us know. Uh, if what do you think of Starman? Have you read it? Uh, I'm surprised several of my my podcasting buddies and comic friends haven't read it. I haven't read the series. I kind of thought. I guess maybe because I mean I know it was fairly popular and DC really pushed it. It won several awards during its run, and I think DC was really it was one of those series that DC was like proud of. You know, I kind of just assumed everybody read it. <laughs> I guess, and I was wrong. So uh, if you haven't, if you've read it, haven't read it, interesting in reading it, let us know what you think. Comment to uh, SupermatesPodcast at gmail dot com. No, that's not it. Yeah, Supermates Podcast. <laughs> I had to stop and think. I'm going to cut that out. Uh, or you can, you know, drop us a line on Facebook, search for Supermates, or leave a comment at supermatescomic.blogspot.com. That's what was messing me up, that thing. So, you know, uh, let us know what you think of it, and uh, we'll see you guys later. Bye. Bye. Supermates is a Franklin and Franklin production in association with Bugaloo Enterprises worldwide. The fictional characters and events mentioned in this show are trademark and copyright their respective owners. 
Likewise, all audio clips are copyright their owners, and we mean no infringement by either. Thank you for listening to Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast. Science.